You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, so everyone needs to turn their Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And we um, have been kind of witnessing a court case, so to speak, for the last six weeks. Uh, Paul has been making it clear. First, he says, hey, for the God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then, for the last six weeks, we're going from verses 18 of chapter 1 through last week, chapter 3, verse 8, he has been showing us why we need salvation. And there could be in us this tendency to be thinking those passages have been about someone else. Like that chapter one, like those are for like the real radical bad Gentiles, you know, the ones that are kind of like just, you know, they're crazy, they're, 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 you know, they're just throwing God's word away. And, you know, so that's not really me. You know, the, the, the Jews, obviously, I'm not a Jew, so, you know, it's interesting you know, and I'm kind of watching this court case. Anyone like watching court cases? Okay, no one. Okay, I don't, maybe that channel's not doing well now. Uh, but I, uh, 95, anyone, 94, 95, anybody remember the whole O.J. Simpson thing? That's where, like, court TV came out afterwards because, like, everyone was glued to their TVs watching that. And there can be this kind of tendency, like, oh, like, I'm really interested, like, What's going to happen? Are they going to be convicted? Like there was like a Netflix thing, similar thing. Like, what, what, like what's going to happen? But I want us to understand today this passage that we're going to be reading, even if you've been able to somehow skirt, you know, it wasn't about me in chapter one, it's not about me in chapter two. Well, it is for sure about you in the text today. It's 100% about you because you are alive today, right? It's going to say, all people, everyone. There, there, there is this inclusive indictment against every single person. And so as we think about this text this morning, I want you to imagine yourself, you are on trial. This is not, is while we're imagining that we're in a court case, we're not imagining the fact that this is what is being said about us by God. Not by someone else, but by God. These are the things that he tells us about ourselves as we sit on trial. We stand accused before him. Now, if you've been coming to church for a while, you might be like, okay, I think I know this text. I know where we're going with this. I want, I'm praying for you that you would see these verses anew with horror that the weight of what is being said in these verses would, would grip your heart as they ought to, as they have to, if you are truly going to understand salvation. Without understanding these verses, salvation is like, what for? What's the point? It is only by understanding these, these verses that we're looking at today that we will truly understand why we need a, a, a Savior why Jesus had to come. And so let us read together verses 9 through 20. Paul writes this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all 
Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I've entitled this message, The Verdict is In. As we think about gospel clarity, the verdict is in, and as we look at the fact that the verdict is in, God's verdict is clear, and so there's five things I must do. God's verdict is clear, so first of all, I must acknowledge my sinful disposition. I need to acknowledge my sinful disposition. He began by saying, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now, it seems like he's contradicting himself, right? Didn't he just say in verse 1, like, what advantage do we Jews have? He's like, well, much in every way. And now he's like saying, nothing. So what's going on here? Well, much in every way, they had been given the word of God. But when it comes to judgment, as he's been making clear all through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, when it comes to judgment, they will be judged for their sins just as much as the Gentiles will be. There is no impartiality with our God. This is his point. Verse, uh, sorry, as he continues on in the verse, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And this is the summary of all that he's been saying. Both man and woman, every man and woman have been under sin. To be under sin is to be captive to its power in your life. Stop puts it like this. Paul's appear, Paul appears almost to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us, weighs us down, and is a crushing burden. Even as believers, we understand that statement today. Before Christ, you were enslaved to your sin. You had no choice. You thought you were in control, but you weren't. You were enslaved to your sin. But the text here is, is reminding us that it is every single person is not just some bad people. Every single person is under sin. And even as Christians, as I was saying, even as Christians, you and I still battle with it, right? We're not in heaven yet. We're still struggling. We're still battling. This last week, you have regrets in your life because you chose to do things that you know are not glorifying to God. And we feel the weight of sin. Now Paul, he wants them to understand that he's not coming up with some new theology. You know, Jews, you understand the book. You have the book. We've talked about the book. Can I just give you now a bunch of different scriptures to show you 
that what I'm saying is not something I'm just making up, but it is what God says about you. As it is written. As it is written. He's going to make clear that the Scriptures say that we are sinful people. We are not mainly good people who do bad things every now and then. We are sinful people. He strings together here seven Old Testament quotations. Just bam, 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 bam. Like, can I give you some examples? And he gives seven different Old Testament verses here in these eight verses of why we are under sin. First, he quotes from Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and Psalm 53, 1 to 3, and also Ecclesiastes 7.20. So three different sections of Scripture, three different times that four, including this one, that God's saying exactly the same thing to us. You think that maybe this is a message he wants us to hear? Like, every single one of us have a really tough time accepting the fact that we are not good people. We all want to think we're good people. I, you know, I, I know some people. They think I'm good. My friends, they tell me I'm, good, I'm a good person. One of the nicest people they've ever met, right? Like we always, we're always like mounting this, this case as to why we're good people, but what the Scriptures are going to tell us, that's not the case. He just comes straight out with it. None is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now you see the repetition here? Not one. No one. None. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, maybe someone. No, it's like no one. Right? Like, do you see what he's trying? Like, you couldn't make it more clear. And, and I think the repetition is there because people don't like it. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> Apparently, I bring this up fairly often on Sunday mornings because I don't know how many times I've heard over the last 10 years that people, when they first start coming to this church, they really don't like me. Why do you have to keep bringing up that we're sinful? And I don't even, honestly, I don't even realize I'm doing it. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I'm just preaching the text. And, and, but they're, they're like, okay, yeah, 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 whatever. Can we move on? We don't like to hear it because it kind of lowers us down a little bit. But the text here is being really clear that there are none of us who are good. None is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? It's to be right with God. There is no one who is right with God, not, not even one. Now, MacArthur puts it like this. Men's achieving God's standard of righteousness on their own may be compared to a group of people trying to jump from the shore of a South Sea island to the United States. A good athlete could jump 25 feet or more. Many could jump 10 or 15 feet, and a few might be in such poor shape that they could barely jump at all. Measured against each other, therefore their efforts would be considerably different, right? Like, we're like wow, 25 feet, that's pretty amazing. Right? And, you know, like me, I'd be like, you know, like, okay, 
So like that guy was way further ahead. But when it comes to trying to jump from the South Seas to the United States, it really doesn't matter. Like nobody's going to like, oh, he got a lot further. Like the gap is so wide between our righteousness and God's righteousness. The whole point of this is that, listen, your efforts to be righteous are futile. Anything that you would try to do on your own is going to fall short, as he's going to tell us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. In fact, it says, no one understands or even seeks for God. As we saw in Romans 1, even though there's plenty of evidence that there is a God, people reject Him and worship and serve creation instead. Without the Spirit of God at work in a person's life, they will reject God over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. The understanding that is lacking for every individual is not, is not necessarily that they couldn't read this book and learn a few things. That their lack of understanding is regards to spiritual things, to moral things. Unless the Spirit of God is at work, they cannot understand these things, nor would they seek after God. In fact, all have turned aside. Now, many claim to seek after God, right? But not the God of the Bible. Billions of people on this earth are worshiping a God. But it's not this God. It's not the Creator God. They're there, there's a lot of, it's popular today to say what? I'm spiritual. Well, what does that mean? Right? Well, it means like I'm not totally against something being out there, but what I am really against is submitting to this God. No one without the Spirit of God will pursue Him. We've all turned aside. Now, we don't all turn aside in the same way, but if Isaiah 53, 6 says this, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. So some will turn to just straight up paganism, right? I don't, I don't want to live like there's any God, I'm just going to give myself over to my sin. Some people are like, I'm going to be religious, I'm going to do the right things, to in, in order to my religious system that I might earn my way into heaven. Like, there's all kinds of different ways, and, but unless you turn to the way, Jesus Christ, all ways will fall short. Together, they have become worthless. That, that's that's kind of not great, right? When you think about your identity apart from Christ, I'm worthless. Or it could be put like this, to be or become characterized as having no beneficial use or incapable of functioning usefully. It's to be useless. Apart from God's saving grace, we are worthless. We are useless. Why? Because we have been created to serve and worship 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. And without that functioning in our life, we are worthless. The Westminster Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so if I'm walking in my sin, then I'm failing to do what I was created to do. No one does good, not even one. Again, our standard of good deeds versus God's standards of good deeds are not even close in comparison. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and, are all, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You could say that in a whole lot more graphic terms, but we'll just keep it like that. It's the most disgusting thing that you can think of. That's what your good works are like. This is kind of a downer. Like, like, really? This is, but this is what the verdict is. As God looks at you, this is not Paul's words. He's making that clear. As it is written, can I just tell you, God's verdict is in. While people may do things that are good, their motivation is always self-centered in one way or another. And the result is that their deeds become like a polluted garment. Again, compared to God's righteous standards, our, God, our good fails in comparison again and again. So these verses are making it clear that every single one of us are sinners. We're not mainly good people who make mistakes now and then. Our disposition is sinful. Our default position is sin. He continues to, to elaborate on this. The second thing we see that God's verdict is clear is that I must affirm my sinful inclination. Not just do I just have a disposition that way, but I have an inclination to sin. Verses 13 and 14, he says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He, he turns his attention to our speech. It's interesting how he kind of progresses from the throat to the tongue to the lips and then talks about our mouths. He begins by quoting from Psalm 9. Their throat is an open grave. Well, that's a word picture, right? Like, how disgusting is that? Just think about an open grave. Just that body decaying and rotting, and it's just open for all the world to see. Your throat is an open grave. It's giving us insight to our hearts, which are dead and wicked. And out of our wicked hearts we speak, is what he's saying here. I mean, people have told you, you might, people may have told you that you have bad breath. Like this bad breath is nothing like your bad breath. Like this bad breath is like there's no mouthwash in the world that is taking away this bad breath. Spiritual halitosis, there's only one way that it can be taken away. 
and through Christ and Christ alone. No amount of works on my own can take away this. And so my throat shows my dead heart, my corruption of my heart. Secondly, he says they use their tongue to deceive. Out of the overflow of the heart, sinful mankind uses the tongue to lie and deceive people. There was a TED Talk that estimated that every day you are lied to 10 to 200 times a day. Right? 10 to 200 times a day you're being lied to. I don't find that hard to believe these days. I, I don't even have to leave my home. Right? I, 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 can, I can just flip on the TV. I can just flip on my social media. There are so many lies out there and people grasping for truth but being lied to. That same TED Talk believes that every person lies at least once or twice a day. Why? Why do we lie? We lie to avoid others, to protect others, to protect ourselves, to promote ourselves. We lie for personal gain. We lie for, to avoid personal embarrassment. Sometimes we lie just to hurt someone else. When we lie, Jesus said we are like the father of lies, Satan. God is truth, and when we lie, we are walking the exact opposite way of him. God is not okay with deceit, ever. So we use our mouths to lie. Then he says the venom of asps is under their lips. In other words, there's just this poison ready to hit. This is from Psalm 140, verse 3. The person who walks in deception is a deadly poison ready to go. Oftentimes it's through our flattery, right? Through our flattery, and then boom, we hit the person. And our words are destructive and deadly. James says it like this in James 3, 7 to 10. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Just consider even this last week, how did you use your words? Were they used to build up, to strengthen, to encourage, or were you using your words to tear down, to slander, to gossip, to complain, to grumble? Many times, we're not even repentant about it. We excuse it because I was hurt. I was angry. So it was okay that I used my tongue to cut you up, to poison you. And then he says this, in case you were in doubt about your sinful condition, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is from Psalm 10, verse 7. Psalm 10, verse 7, the Word of God is making clear here that this is not an exception to the rule. Your mouth is full of curses and bitterness, full of it. MacArthur says this, 
Every age of mankind, our own certainty included, has been characterized by people who use their tongues as vicious weapons. Their attacks not only are against those they know well enough to hate, but sometimes, as David seems to intimate, even against strangers, simply for the perverse pleasure of venting their anger and hatred. Full of curses and bitterness. How many times have you yelled and screamed at the person who just cut you off? You don't know them, but you're going to vent on them anyways. And they can't hear you, by the way. But you're going to do it anyways. Our speech is quick to remind us of our wickedness. It begins in the heart. James 3, 9 and 10 says this, With our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. As you sit on trial this morning, consider your words. Consider your mouth. How is it being used? Even as a believer, What would God say of the way that you're using your mouth? Would he find you guilty? If you're not in Christ, I can guarantee you, he's just told you the reality of your condition. Well, not all the time. No, not, not all the time. Sometimes you do good things by his grace. But just one time is enough to make you guilty. Receding out of the mouth, Proceeding from the mouth, Paul continues to give God's verdict. God's verdict is clear. I must admit my sinful participation. Verses 15 to 18. Not only do we sin with our speech, through our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, but we sin through the rest of our bodies. Now he talks about our actions in verses 15 to 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. As humanity, we are violent. He's quoting here from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. You have to get all the way to the fourth chapter before you read about the first murder. As people, we learn to be violent from a really young age. In fact, we don't need anybody to teach us. Just watch two three-year-olds fight over a toy, right? What happens? They push each other. They'll, you know, grab it violently, right? They might hit the other one with the toy, right? Like, that's in our hearts. I remember my junior high. I don't know what the junior highs are like now, but mine was quite special. And, and um... And, and, you know, like, there was literally a fight to go watch every lunch hour. I remember my locker partner, he was being bullied over and over again. He's like, come on, let's fight. Come on, let's fight. And finally, the guy lost it, grabbed his, our, our lock, and then smashed it over the guy's back of his head. And he's kind of slid down the locker. I mean, needless to say, he didn't bully anymore, but that wasn't the solution, Right? Like, violence is in us, right? Like, oh, I'm kind of a passive person. That guy was until what? 
till somebody pushed his buttons. We are violent by nature. On a global basis, what? We've only gotten better at ways to kill one another. Like, we, we kind of have this, again, like, oh, we're so good as the earth. No, we're not. Genocide still happening. Verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. As we've been flipping on the news the last nine months, I mean, seeing the violence on TV, it's, just, it's not changing. It's, it's the path that we're on. Why do we do this? James tells us in James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's written within our DNA. And it's not just violence out there. It's not just hostility out there. It's in our homes. I mean, how many broken families do you know of right now? How many churches have been split because you cannot be unified? I mean, how many churches are splitting over COVID right now? How ridiculous is that? But that's where we're at, right? We we just get our own, we get focused on our thing, our selfishness, and we, we fight, we grumble, we quarrel. And in the path, there's ruin and misery. No peaceful harmony without Christ. And like, like, that's the best of it, right? Like if we're just like hating one another and, and fighting with one another, consider that, 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 that humanity also, the, the massive amount of abuse that is happening around our world today, rape, torture, genocide, as I already said. There is no lack of ruin and misery in this world. Verse 17, in the way of peace, they have not known. There is no way to peace apart from God. We are at enmity with one another, and we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of Him without Jesus Christ. That's our default position as people. Commentator Heldane says this, The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. They think, well, I would would never murder anyone. Well, maybe, maybe you never would, but let's be reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We are continually in conflict with one another, and hatred is bound up within our hearts. Why? Because verse 18 reminds us there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is, again, the root issue. He brought it up at the beginning of Romans 1, 18, when he began this whole argument. Why do these things happen? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no reverence of him. We have seen that there's a God. We don't care, and we have turned to our own ways, every single one of us. Matt read that text earlier, Psalm 36, verse 2, it says what? 
he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity, iniquity cannot be found and hated. I'm going to get away with it. No one can stop me. This is man's viewpoint. And as we have become more and more atheistic in our society, what are we seeing? An increase of wickedness over and over and over again. This is why the Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Eyes that do not look to God, feet that are swift to hurt and destroy, mouths that spew out curses and deceit, flowing from our nasty, dead hearts. That's who we are. That's the reality check. This is how God sees humanity. Stott says this, This is the biblical doctrine of total depravity, which I suspect is repudiated only by those who misunderstand it. It is never meant that human beings are as depraved as they possibly could be. Such a notion is manifestly absurd and untrue and is contradicted by our everyday observations. Not all human beings are drunkards, felons, adulterers, or murderers. The totality of our corruption refers to its extent, twisting and tainting every part of our humanness. Not to its degree, depraving every part of us absolutely. That's the scary part. It could be far worse than it already is. Packer says this, he puts it like this, on the one hand, no one is as bad as he, he or she might be, while on the other, no action of ours is as good as it should be. This morning, as you sit on trial, you need to acknowledge your sinful disposition, you need to acknowledge your sinful inclination, your sinful participation, and fourthly, I need to accept my deserved condemnation. Verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul, in relaying the scriptures, he has just shown that the OT scriptures make it clear. He's just given them seven verses. They make it clear that the, the Jews do not have an advantage over the Gentiles. The law has made it clear that we are all guilty before God. Under the law... The Jews should have understood that. We are all condemned, whether Jew or Gentile, for we are all accountable to God. This list that Paul gives us here, it, should be, it is shocking to our modern ears, is it not? It's shocking to our modern ears when we're told over and over again that we're basically good people. As I mentioned earlier, we have friends or teachers or classmates or neighbors who maybe tell you that you're a good person. But there's one person, probably more than any other, who's told you that you're good. Who's that? Your mom, right? Your mom or your dad. J.C. Ryle says this, The fairest child who has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of a family is not, as his mother perhaps fondly calls him, a little angel or a little innocent. Rather, he is a little sinner. Alas, as that infant boy or girl lies smiling and crowing in its cradle, that little creature carries 